Yeah, I know what you're thinking, perfect text to pick for Mother's Day. Well, uh, this morning we're doing what we normally do, preaching straight through the Bible, and this just happens to be where we landed uh, in 2 Peter as we've been going through. Now, one thing that you know about the nature of Christianity, if you've been around Christians for any time, is that it's possible to be visibly present amongst the people of God, and yet spiritually far from them. It's possible for you to profess Christ, to have some knowledge of Jesus and the things of the Bible, and yet not to know the Christ of the Bible. Uh, A recent article in The Economist, which was published back in May of 2020 as the um, coronavirus was beginning to take full effect, came out, and the article said the virus is accelerating the de-churching of America. Now, I thought that was an interesting word, de-churching. It's a word that we see a lot. Uh, It sort of gives this vision of someone who has been a part in some way of the visible people of God, and yet now they are not. Uh, When I I read it, it gives me this idea of somebody that kind of hitches up their Winnebago or their uh, sort of trailer to their truck and then unhitches it, as though that's the kind of way that it works. But I don't think that that's the way the Bible speaks of Christianity. It's not the way that Christ speaks of his church, the church that he promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Um, It is a a sort of redefining of the nature of the way that Bible speaks of the church. See, here, I think what we find, though, in this analysis is that there are, are some things that appear to be one way to the eye, yet spiritually there is something far different that's going on. You know, sometimes we see folks moving away from being visibly part of the people of God with anger on social media. You've seen people who have once perhaps even walked with you, maybe even been in your community group, who have gone on Facebook to discuss the fact that they have left Christ and his people. Uh, We've watched a former member of ours do that recently. Sometimes that drift is more subtle where people simply seem to get caught up in the cares of this world and they they drift away almost imperceptibly. Now this de-churched group continues to grow here in the United States. In fact, uh, one study showed that in Oklahoma, uh, they did an analysis and found that this de-churched group represented 60% of the unchurched in Oklahoma. I love all of these words they've made up. And I sent sorrow, sorrow over this, but I also want to think biblically about it. I don't remember the Bible using language like de-churched or unchurched. The Bible speaks more of internal heart realities, spiritual realities. And Peter uses different language in our Remember This True Knowledge series as we look at 2 Peter 2, 17 to 22 this morning. He is looking at a similar kind of reality. False teachers who have walked away from Christ and are looking to lure others away. And as Peter has approached death, he, he was writing this letter, as you'll remember, to his and future generations who were in danger of being led away. Uh, they were false teachers. And they were teaching a couple of things. One was that Jesus was not coming back. And then second, that therefore it doesn't matter how you live. Well, it could be that some manipulated Paul's teaching on freedom and grace to say that 
You are free to indulge in the cares of the world, that it does not matter. You'll remember that Peter's been systematically exposing in chapter 2 the false teachers, uh, what they look like, what their character is like, and what their end is. Well, this morning our big idea is this, and if you take notes, it's a great thing to write down. It's that we need to look to teachers who have drunk deeply from Christ. We need to look to teachers who have drunk deeply from Christ. Now, notice first that we're told in verse 17, the false teachers are waterless springs and moving mists with gloomy reservations. You get three images there that just begin this little series. Now, as a desert-dwelling Phoenician, we, we all know that we can relate to the desperation, the desperate need for water, right? I mean, we need to keep hydrated. Uh, how many of you would not be seen without your hydro flask in, in one hand and your gun on your hip in the other, right? I mean, like, that's just kind of who we are, an independent people who need to be well-watered. It gets hot. Well, we can quickly relate to the three quick metaphors in verse 17 that describe these false teachers. He's been describing them throughout chapter 2, and notice he says in verse 17, these are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. See, these false teachers, they are waterless springs, literally a waterless water source. You know that you're not living up to your potential if you are called the source of something of which you have none. If you wander the desert, you will quickly find that water is essential for life. Imagine yourself on the verge of dehydration and death when you see what seems to be a spring promising life in the distance, and you begin to run for that water. You're, you're thinking to yourself, I need it to live. And as you draw near, you find out that there is no water in that water spring. It's kind of like all the rivers that are on the maps of Phoenix. Don't take a fishing pole. You'll be embarrassed. We don't have water in our rivers. They're, they're for just the emergency case that water might show up someday. And sometimes it does. But imagine that you're running to this water source and the spring that's promising water, and it does not deliver. Isn't there a sense that not only does it leave you wanting, but you kind of in a sense want it more than before you saw and had hope that was disappointed? I mean, it's almost as though this water source makes grand promises that get you excited and hopeful, and then you show up, and there's nothing there. I took my wife to a restaurant recently, the kind of restaurant that she likes and that I endure. <laughs> Husbands, this is the kind of thing that you do if you love your wife, right? Every once in a while, at least one in ten. And, and as we went, I started reading through the menu, trying to find something that would be enticing. And I found a healthy burger section. I didn't see healthy, I just saw burger. And I began to read down, and I noticed that there was a mushroom burger, which by my account is not a burger. There was a black bean burger. There were burgers made of just about everything except what? Burger. And so whereas I got excited and thought that I got to cheat on giving her the restaurant she wanted and still got the hamburger, I could, you know, uh, get my cake and, and eat it too and all, whatever that is. And, and yet here I was disappointed, very disappointed. 
Well, that's, I think, the kind of image that we get with this, this water source. It just leaves us disappointed. And notice the second image. It's notoriously hard to understand, but I think it's related. They are mist driven by a storm. Now, Jude 12 uses a, a kind of similar image. It talks about uh, these rainless clouds. And I think the idea is similar here. It kind of relates to that previous image. It's this visible mist that promises water to a parched earth, but it never touches down. The, the wind drives it away, and what it does is end up dashing the hopes of those who desperately needed water for their crops. See, false teachers look like springs that promise desperately thirsty souls, promises them life-giving waters, but they leave them thirstier than when they began to listen. Do you see it? We, we, we come to these teachers as a source of life, and yet they show up empty. Now, this isn't like unique to Second Peter that we compare water to teachers. Uh, the book of Proverbs depicts teachers that give and sustain spiritual life as fountains in Proverbs 13, 14. Uh, there, the, pro the proverb says, the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life, turning a person from the snares of death. Do you see it? Uh, it it's a, a source of life. It turns them from death. Don't miss this. God's word, the scriptures, ought to be life-giving in the life of a believer. Do you, do you hear me? Just looking for eyes here. If you are a Christian, the Bible, the, the, the scriptures, God's word, his revelation of himself to us should be life-giving. It is not a chore, but a gift. This is a source, a wellspring of life for you and for me. And if you look at your Bible and it's dusty and you think that it looks cumbersome, I would say that what that means is, is that there's nothing wrong with that book, which is God's word. There's something wrong with your heart. There's something about the nature of the way that you are viewing God's speech that needs to be changed. It is a spiritual reality that needs to be addressed if you don't love God's word. Now, I just want you to know, all of us will have times and seasons, I wish not, but, but in guessing so, where we will struggle to have an appetite for God's word at all or as we should. And so we need to constantly be about the, the business of stirring up our hearts towards the beauty and wonder of God's word. I mean, how many of you could testify that when you came to Christ, one thing that you knew was different before you came to Christ and after you came to Christ was an appetite for God's word? Anybody? I know because I've heard your testimonies. And so many of you, when you have talked about coming to Christ, and we've said, well, what kind of fruit did you see? One of the common answers is, I started to long to read God's word and to understand it. And we want to make sure that we continue to stir that. Don't miss this. Christians know and love God's voice in God's word. Jesus' sheep know and love the voice of the good shepherd. Now, there's a warning. Don't miss this here in these verses. It is possible to enjoy and use God's word and still yet not be saved. Now, I, again, I am not trying to fear monger, but we're going to see in this text, we need to be aware of the fact there's a kind of illumination and knowledge that draws us near, but we still yet don't have faith in Christ alone. Elias Keach was the son of a famed preacher, Benjamin Keach. He came to the United States in Philadelphia. He was still unconverted, and he began to preach to make money. Seems like a good thing to do as a kid of a famous pastor. And it was working. 
And then one day he was preaching and he got to the middle of the sermon. And as he preached, he slowed down and stopped. And everybody's like, what's wrong? He says, I think I just got saved. Now, there was a, a pastor that I did an internship with. He did a number of internships. And, and this one pastor that I worked with, he told me the story of early in his ministry, how he had planted this new church and things were going well. And he was preaching one day and he was converted under his own preaching. Praise God. Hopefully that's not normal. But God's word can change and shape people. And sometimes there are people that can even preach God's word and not yet understand the gospel. See, we as humans, we, we need to be aware of the fact that we must not be merely hearers and even speakers of the word, but doers also. That we should be transformed and shaped and changed by the power of God's word. Yet, I don't know who needs to hear this, but I pray that our church spends at least as much time delighting in God's Word as discerning it. Now, don't parse that too finely so that you begin to discern me as I say that. But I would just hope that we would taste and see that that God's Word is, is truly sweeter than honey. That we don't miss that as we're trying to, to understand it. That we really do value it as being more precious than gold, that we don't miss that as we are looking deeply into our theology. See, as our nature changes the way that we view God and His Word, it should change along with it. There's a new value. There's something inside that changes. Because take note, at the time of the nation of Judah's demise, remember the people of God, they had been separated between Judah and Israel Israel was taken into captivity by Assyria. Later, we find that Babylon is coming for Judah. And Jeremiah is living during the last days of Judah. And in Jeremiah 2.13, we find God warning his people. And Yahweh declares this judgment to them. He says, for my people have committed two evils. Listen to this. I think you'll see how it relates. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that do not hold water. There God goes on to explain that his people apostatized. They left the faith. They left trusting God, living for him. They left following the voice of God, the Redeemer, who redeemed them out of slavery, literal slavery in Egypt. And they returned to the bondage of idolatry. To humans, we will worship Something. That's what God tells us. We were created for worship. We're going to worship something. There is something that is going to control us with our love, with our affections. It's going to change and shape the decisions that we make and the way that we live. Now, I'm not arguing that today. I'm just asserting it. Either you will worship the true God and his word as a life-giving fountain of living or flowing waters, or you will settle for worshiping the good things that God has made Those things, those good things that are from God will start to shape your identity more than being part of the people of God. Your nationality, your political allegiance, your race, your food, your drink, your sex, your sports, anything will begin to shape your identity more than your God. It's not the way that God made it. See, man-made gods, they are wells with lots of leaks. If you're looking to make man-made wells your source of living water, then my guess is that today you are thirsty. Thirsty like somebody stranded in the desert. Spiritual thirst is a good indication of the fact that we aren't drinking deeply from Christ. 
But did you catch the mixed metaphor in verse 17? I don't think it's an accident. Notice that he ends by saying, false teachers don't just leave us thirsty, they have reservations in the gloom of utter darkness. Now, I wonder if Peter switches images here really just to launch our attention to the last day. Like he's been talking about thirst today, and he says, I want today's thirst to remind you of the last day reservation that's reserved for false teachers. Notice, Peter points them to the last day when Jesus will judge the living and the dead. And it's a day when these false teachers, they will be sent to the gloomy darkness. Now, this is an opposite image of what we find of all believers in 1 Peter 2.9. You remember that image. It's glorious. We are those as Christians who have been rescued out of darkness and delivered into what? His marvelous light. That's our reality. And yet here, the future for these folks is not light but darkness. These are apostate teachers destined for the gloom of utter darkness. These false teachers have a reservation in hell along with the demons. It is dark days ahead for these false teachers. False teaching, you might think to yourself that it is not a big deal. But according to Peter, it is a massive deal that has eternal implications. But notice, it looks as though the four in verses 18 to 19 that begins that section signals that Peter is explaining this metaphor. So look with me. Notice in verses 18 to 19. Second, the false teachers, he says, lure new converts with promises of freedom. They're luring new converts with promises of freedom. Now, Peter opens a section speaking of the false teacher, saying, for speaking loud boasts of folly. Now, this word for speaking, it's the same word that was used to describe what the donkey did back in verse 16. You remember the donkey that talked? Balaam's donkey? Well, he spoke there. But the donkey's words saved a life, and we find that these, these false teachers are actually looking to take a life. See, Peter is combining three words to describe what they're doing as they speak. And I would translate these words roughly, they were loud, they were proud, and they were futile. They were loud, proud, and futile. They speak loudly with great craft and confidence, not in God's word, but in themselves, in their own powers of rhetoric. And their words are actually, you'll notice, folly, a word for emptiness or vanity, so they, the words are attractive. They, they strike you and they draw you in, and yet upon closer review, you, you figure out there's no substance here. Peter says that they are trying to draw in others to listen to their empty teachings. Now, their teaching appears superficially attractive, but it's spiritually empty. Their words promise life, but they end in death. It, it's really much like a fisherman who is throwing out bait with a hook to catch a fish. But who is it that they're fishing for in verse 18? And what bait are they using in verse 19? Well, you'll notice in verse 18, the false teachers lure new converts. Now, we've seen this word for entice that he uses at the beginning before. It's the same word for luring. Now, by this time, I don't know that it still carried this fishing metaphor, but it is a good image for the nature of what enticing means. It's like they're trying to fish for these folks. And though it might not mean the same thing here, it's a good image to describe what they're doing in their enticing. See, Paul says, I mean, Peter says, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping 
from those who live in error. Now, that, that word for sensual, we've seen it before. It means a kind of self-abandoned meant to desires, giving yourself over to the wants of your life. And often it carries a sexual meaning, but it can also speak to giving yourself to any desire, like food or drink or another pleasure pursuit. See, humans are by nature appetitive creatures. We have appetites. Have you noticed that? We, we are appetite-driven creatures left to ourselves. We have appetites for God's good creation. Appetites that aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves, but when shaped by the fall, they become inordinate. We want things too much or not enough in the way that God has created them. Now, if you think that this isn't you, then my guess is you need to just analyze your experiences from the last month or so. I had some friends recently who tested my family's resolve not to give in to the flesh by sending us a box of dozen large frosted cookies from Crumble Cookies. Have y'all had those? Aren't they good? Like, maybe sinfully good. Maybe it's just my heart. I mean, but what kind of family sends a box of a dozen of the cookies that are as big as your head and says, here, I dare you to practice self-control? That's why I'm on keto again today. And probably tomorrow. But the war is real, right? We want more. We can't just have one large cookie or two. We have to have all of them until they're gone. We need more food, more alcohol, more pleasure. And at some point, our desires for more begin to control us more than our love for Christ. We become distracted from the the meaning of our existence. We're told in scriptures that everything is supposed to be about God. Think about it. Paul says whether you eat or drink, the very basic necessities of life, whether you do either of those things, you need to do them to what? The glory of God. And some of you are thinking, I don't know how to hold my water bottle so that it maximizes the glory of God. But the idea is, is that there's nothing that we do outside of the purposes and intents of bringing glory to him and exercising self-control and joy and gratitude. But catch this. God created you and me for something more than satisfying our momentary appetites. You weren't made for the just next five minutes or the next day or the next week. We were made for eternity. He created us to glorify and enjoy our good creator God forever. You ever thought about how your life would change if you really believed that every second of every day? How you would change the way you spent your money if you said, I'm living forever. I have a God who provides for all of my needs. That's how God has made us. But catch this. God has made us for so much more. God created food, drink, sex, etc. He made them good and he gave them to us in a context of how to approach those realities to his glory. As you've likely heard, God's good gifts make bad gods. But who is he speaking of particularly here in our text? He, he mentions those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Who are these who are barely escaping? Well, don't miss this. I I think the false teachers target new converts. I think that's what Peter's trying to tell us. Think about this. These false teachers are smart fishermen. And they are looking to catch and lead away from Christ new believers. It's pretty bad, right? 
There's a variant that's used by the King James Version. If you've got one of those, uh, it says something a little bit different. It says they are those who fully escaped in the past. But I think the ESV rightly understands the escaping that is describing these people is present, a present participle, meaning that they are those who not barely, but recently, they are still in the process of escaping the entanglements of living in error, which describes a pagan lifestyle. They are those who were part of the people who were not part of the people of God. Now they have begun to associate themselves with the people of God, yet there is still, there is, there's some time that it's taking for them to live like this people and not that people. And, and they are growing in that. They're new converts in the process of leaving their old ways of life to follow Christ. And there is a sense in which we are always called to put off the old man and put on the new. But here we find the beginnings of someone that appears to have spiritual life. I'm just wondering this morning, do you know if you're the kind of person, the kind of Christian that a false teacher like this would target? Maybe not in person, maybe online. Are you the kind of person that they would dangle the bait of asking you to actually question Pastors that actually love and know you, or doctrines that are historic to the faith, to entice you to lead you away from the true and living Christ. Are you new to the faith? Do you know if you're, you're weak in faith? Do you sense that you're weak in faith? You know, you can be old, you can be young, and still be an easy target. And if you're young in the faith, let me just encourage you. One of the, the best things that you can do is to find a mature Christian Someone who has been walking with Christ for a while and meeting with them and have them know you in a way that maybe not everybody knows you. Have them pray for you. Have them go through the scriptures with you. Someone you can open your life to and say, am I living like what it means to be someone who has put off Adam and put on Christ? Do I look like that guy? Do I look like that woman? If you're struggling to find that person, you can talk to Ryan Fields. He'd be happy to help you connect with someone. But if you want to be a, a young, maturing Christian, let me encourage you to be one who is fat. Now, here's what I mean by that. I know you're like, well, you just told us not to like, live by the pleasures of the flesh and eat a lot. I'm not talking about physically fat. I'm talking about fat as in faithful, available, and teachable. If you are a young Christian, be desperate to have somebody disciple you. What that means is you need to be nimble. You need to be willing to like meet Whenever that person who is mature in the faith can meet, you want to say, I, I value it that much. You know, <clears throat> some of you guys would go to the gym at midnight if you had to. But would you be willing to wake up at 6 a.m. to get discipled? If you really understand what's at stake, I would say it's completely worth it. Do what you have to do to get discipled. Seek to be known by your local church as a young Christian. If you have questions about the faith, Come to us. Let us suggest books that can strengthen you and join a community group. Have a community that's coming around you and knowing you and praying for you. See, I, I believe that what I have noticed in my life over the last 30 years of, of being a part of a church as a, a believer is that when folks are actually living in the context of a local church and giving them themselves to it faithfully, they grow tremendously more than those who do not. There is it's just a great a great rate sort of uh, increase in their maturity as compared to those people who do not do those things. 
and if you're mature in the faith. But let me just encourage you, find a younger Christian and patiently love them. It might be that in that pursuit of patiently loving a younger Christian, you realize that you yourself need more maturity to do it. Because my guess is there are a lot of immature Christians that don't know they're immature and they likely don't know that they need you as much as they do. So you need to be patient with them and pursue them and love them. Read the Bible with them. Ask them questions about their lives and what aspects of the world are hardest for them to turn from. What baits do they struggle with the most? Is it drink or a love for friends that draw them away or food or love of money? My guess is that if you're a mature Christian, you're going to grow as you pour into other Christians. But notice the way that they bait their hooks in verse 19. Did you see that? The false teachers promise freedom but are enslaved. This is the kind of teaching that, that's attractive. Now see if you hear the irony of the doctrinal teaching of these false teachers in verse 19. It says, they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Now here we get a little bit of a snapshot of the doctrine they are teaching. It is headlined as freedom. And you might ask yourself, well, freedom from what? I like freedom in general, so what kind of freedom are they selling? Well, some have suggested that they are offering freedom from fear of spiritual beings, and we've seen a lot of talk about spiritual beings thus far. Uh, some have said it's freedom from fear of Jesus' final return when he comes back. And so yet others have said it, it's freedom from any kind of requirements to honor Christ morally in the decisions we make and the way that we live. Well, this could be a crowd these false teachers who were manipulating Paul's teaching. You, you'll remember that, that Paul talks about freedom. Uh, it, 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 was, it was back in Galatians 5.1 that he said it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And maybe they just stopped it right there because he goes on to say, stand firm therefore and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. See, Peter does not later say that Paul's teaching, he does go on to say that Paul's teaching is difficult. It might be that they had a misunderstanding of doctrine itself. Catch this. That's a way that bad doctrine works a lot. They're appealing to Scripture, but they're misusing it. We can't be for sure, but I take it that given Peter's discussion thus far, he's talking about freedom from moral constraint. You can live how you want. And connected to that, why can you live how you want? Because Jesus is not the judge who's going to hold you account on the last day. There's no, there's no accountability that's coming. But notice what they promise. They promise freedom while it says they themselves are slaves of corruption. Now, corruption is an interesting word. It can mean physical corruption or here of moral corruption, the same word for depravity. Now, he explains that whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Now, Doug Moo observes here, he's a commentator, he says this, Peter reinforces the point by quoting a proverb, a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. Now, to be overcome is to be conquered, subjugated, made a slave to another. You'll remember that Peter opened his letter in chapter 1, verse 1, calling himself Peter, who was what? A slave of Jesus. Now, that's the same word that is used here, doulos, for slave of 
corruption. People said, Peter says, you can either, you listen to me, you can either be a slave of Christ or you can be a slave of corruption. Those are kind of the two options, the two ways to live. Not really a middle road here. Like these are the two options. Peter says, I'm a slave of Christ. Now the Bible teaches that corruption entered the world when the first man, Adam, sinned against God. He disobeyed his voice and it subjugated every part of us. This is true for everybody in this room. When Adam fell, we all inherited a sin nature such that it affected every part of us, our minds. We don't think like we should. I think we have plenty of proof of that. Our wills. We don't want what we should want. Our emotions. We don't get emotional in the ways we ought to about the things we should. And even our physical bodies are under corruption. They are decaying and dying. We live in a, a broken world that is hostile towards God. That's what corruption describes. And that's why David says in Psalm 51.5 that it is in sin that his mother conceived him. It's not saying that it was a sinful way that she had him, but he literally was born into sin. He was a sinner by nature and by choice. And every human is born in Adam. And sin affects the way that we think, the moral choices we make, our emotions, and our physical bodies, which are dying day by day. How do I know that? Because everybody dies. That's how we know that everybody has been affected by sin. See, we still bear God's image, but it is marred by sin. Paul, I think, explains this well in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, as he is thinking about life before and after Christ. And he says this to the Ephesian Christians, and you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom, listen, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We've all inherited that sin nature from Adam and, and are depraved. You know, I recently had a, a woman who I met with, and she, she was thinking about this idea of the fact that humans are depraved, and she says, I don't like it. I don't want it taught to my children. I feel like it would be abusive to tell my kids that they were born under sin, that they inherited a sin nature. But this is the nature of the gospel need we have, that we are hopeless apart from Christ, that we cannot save ourselves, not even a little bit, that we were in desperate need, not of recovery, but of being raised from the dead. See, we need God's grace to save us from a corrupt world that, that reaches down from the outside into us to the very core of the things that we want. That's how corrupt we are. Even the very nexus of our being that drives our desires has been affected by the corruption that entered the world through Adam. We are more desperate than we know. We don't even want what we ought to want. I didn't have to teach my kids this doctrine. I didn't have to teach my kids the word mine. Right? Like, 
you, you just, one day, it's just like, mine. All I ever did was gave to them. And yet they say, no, mine. See, selfishness comes naturally. I, I like what Augustine said. Before the fall, two things were true of humanity. That man could choose to sin, and man could choose not to sin. That was Adam's state. And also, it was possible for man to die, and it was possible for man to live forever. But after the fall, the, the reality is that, that man could not choose not to sin. And it was not possible for him to live forever without a mighty intervention from God. See, the fall didn't merely leave us with less righteousness than we had before, as Jacob Arminius said. It, it didn't mean that we were just playing with less house money than, than Adam had to play with in the garden. What the fall did for us was left us corrupt, destined for death and destruction. See, I think that what Peter wants us to see here is that Bob Dylan actually got it right. You got to serve somebody. And we've been called to serve who? Jesus. See, apart from Christ, we are like the buzzard who really does have freedom to eat what he wants. I mean, there's plenty of like lettuce and vegetation out there. But what does he always choose? Nine times out of ten anyway. Meat. Why? It's, it's his nature. It's what he has an appetite for. See, we aren't sinners because we sin. We are sinning because we are sinners. Living for our corrupt desires, it, it leads, Peter says, to the gloom of utter darkness, which is hell. Now, don't miss this. First, if you are not growing in maturity, and I'm not just talking about maturity in your knowledge of doctrine, but maturity in your life and your moral excellence to look more like Jesus. If you're not submitting more and more to him as years go by, and I'm not saying it's not clunky, but there is growth that you can discernibly see. There is growth that others can discernibly see. If that's not you, then what that means is, catch this, you're spiritually dead. That's not Pastor Josh, that's Jesus. Trees that are connected to the true root produce fruit. And those that do not will be cut down and burned on the last day. So if you're amongst the people of God, and you are, you are hearing the things of God, and you think maybe you're safe because you're attending church, and you're present, and maybe you're even a member, and maybe you've even remembered verses, and, and there are all kinds of things that point to, yeah, maybe this is the kind of person that is safe. And yet what we find is if there's no fruit of moral excellence and change in your life, Jesus says we're hopeless. Second, you're either a slave of Christ destined for life or you're a slave of corruption destined for hell. So Peter is not mincing words. He's super clear. Only Christ can deliver on the freedom, joy, meaning, and eternal life that God created us for. There's nowhere else to go. There are many cisterns that people have hewn for themselves all over the place. Cisterns of sex and power and money. Saints football always leaves me discouraged. There are all kinds of things that we put, humans put their hopes in. Dumb things. Food. Things that God made. Things that we've made. And every one of those things, all of those sources, at the end of the day, leave us thirsty. It's only Christ that can bring us true freedom. Freedom from a world that's dying, that's decaying, that's destined for death and destruction. See, many like today are like these false teachers. And it, and it grieves me. People that I, I looked up to, that I wanted to be like when I grew up. 
You know, Josh Harris renounced his faith on YouTube. Abraham Piper is denying Christ on TikTok. I'm not sure exactly what TikTok is. But he went there to deny his faith. They, they are actually inviting other young quasi-spiritual people to follow them out of following Christ and his people according to the scriptures. They are preaching a kind of gospel of freedom. Saying you can live how you want, do what you want, and not follow Christ with your moral lives. They're encouraging others to de-church, which I don't like that word. Let me just encourage you, don't follow them to hell. Those who have the true faith will look more and more like the morally excellent Christ. You will look more and more like the morally excellent Christ as you follow him, as you give yourself to him. So pray, pray for men like these, for their salvation, because they are in more danger than you know. Did you catch what it says about false teachers like this in verses 20 to 21? It's terrifying. It says apostasy is worse than never knowing the way. Now, this is a tough text. Notice, first, apostasy leaves the false teachers worse than better before. Notice what it says in verse 20. As you look there, uh, we need to answer some questions. First, we need to identify who's Peter talking about Who's the they that have escaped the defilements of this world? Now, it could be the, the new unstable converts that the false teachers were trying to lure away in verse 18. But I think it's more likely that it's speaking of those false teachers from verse 19, just before it. It's those who Peter says have reservations in the gloomy darkness in verse 17. Now, a second question we have to ask is, what does Peter mean when he says they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? And then later, he says they are again entangled in them and overcome. That seems like two interesting images. They have escaped, and then they are entangled again. Now, you might ask if these false teachers lost their salvation. You know, once they had knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but now they do not see Jesus as Lord of their moral lives, and therefore they do not have him as Savior from the eternal judgment that awaits those outside of Christ. But what's going on? In what way did they have a knowledge, or were they escaping through this knowledge? Well, knowledge, I believe, is a word in the New Testament that often points to the new covenant promises that we were given in Jeremiah 31. There we were promised new hearts, that God would write his law on our hearts and that his people would know the Lord. So how did those who knew the Lord or were in the process of knowing the Lord get off the hook, as it were, and then get re-entangled and conquered by the world? Doesn't the Bible teach something like, you've heard, once saved, always saved? Is, is that what this is sort of teaching against? Well, this is where I think we need to nuance our doctrine a little bit. For one, there is a kind of enlightenment or knowledge about Jesus that, that visibly identifies us with a, a local church, a new covenant community, that should not be mistaken for a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, I think this stands as a strong warning, these verses, to false teachers and those young in the faith as well who might be tempted to follow them. It is possible to profess saving faith. To get baptized, join a church, know scripture, and even teach, and yet be far from God. So you can be visibly part of God's people, but still lack the, the invisible reality it points to of being united to Christ by faith. You can be physically present, but spiritually dead. 
a member of a local church, but not a member of the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, there's a second nuance. I just want to be careful here. And that's that for once saved, always saved, it says that those who truly know Jesus in a saving way only have to at some point say, I did believe, but there was never any evidence. I don't think that's at all what Peter says throughout this letter. I think that what he is saying is that those who truly know Jesus in a saving way persevere to the end. That's one of the surest indicators of saving faith, that you persevere to the end. See, Christians get knocked down, but they get up again. And why do they get up? Well, it's because Christ lifts them. His Spirit leads them. God finishes His work in them. Those are the ones who have been born again to a new and living hope, to an inheritance that is undefiled and kept in heaven, whose sins are forgiven, whom God has promised will bring to completion the work that He has begun in him or her, and whom He promises nothing shall separate them from the love of God. So what does Peter mean here when he says this? Well, again, he's using, I believe, what he's used before, this kind of language that some call phenomenological language, but it's a word that speaks of someone like a false teacher who made a profession of faith. They were visibly joined to the people of God, yet revealed that they had not obtained a faith of equal standing to the apostles because they apostatized. They did not persevere to the end. So how does apostasy look? How is it that here the, the last state is worse than the first? Well, this could mean that it's going to be more difficult or even impossible for them to come back to the faith. Some have taken it that way. Uh, we, we see that kind of language in Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, where some have experienced God's work amongst the people of God and yet apostatized. And this pastor says, for it is impossible in such cases to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to content. See, this seems to say that they are in a way, being hardened because of their hardness towards the gospel. That's one way. It's, it's harder or impossible for them to come back to faith. Others see Peter speaking of the final judgment here or worse. In fact, Doug Moo says that this is likely pointing to Matthew 12, 43 to 45, where a demon is cast out of a person. The demon goes out and then he comes back with seven more like him to overtake this dwelling. Well, here, those who embrace Christ then walk away to follow the world, and they will face a stricter judgment on the last day. They are in a worse place for not being faithful to the end. Again, I think both can be shown here to be true, that they're not in a good place today, and they're not in a good place on the last day. I fear for people, people I love who have walked away from the faith. You you probably have brothers and sisters, friends Uh, that you love, that have walked away from the faith. And it is something that that is heartbreaking. Some of these folks even post their apostasy on social media for the world to see, knowing that they've hardened their hearts against God and that that brings about greater judgment on the last day. We need to be broken over this. But notice also, he says in verse 22, apostatizing teachers, they look like dogs and pigs, not God. We, We were made to image God. That's what Genesis 1 says. God created us to image him, but Peter, he uses two parables, one of a dog and one of a pig, to describe them in verse 22. Notice what he says. What that true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to his own vomit, 
And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. I'm just curious, how many of you love dogs? Anybody? Maybe you confess you love dogs too much, right? I mean, aren't dogs a man's best friend and maybe a woman's best friend too? And what about pigs? I mean, it's kind of hard to think about a pig without thinking about Wilbur from Charlotte's Web. And so we really have gotten some good PR for dogs and pigs that the first century just didn't have. See, the way that they looked at these animals, they were unclean. Dogs were not house pets. They were wild. They usually would eat trash. They were kind of gross. And so you can imagine if they're eating trash and they throw up, the vomit was extra gross. And and pigs, they they loved the mud. And so you have these animals that were unclean. They were not loved culturally. And you might read this image of a dog returning to his vomit and think, why did he preach this on Mother's Day? That's a good question. I'm not going to answer it here. But is it too strong? Is it too strong to think of a dog returning to his throw-up? Is that too strong of an image to describe what it looks like for a believer who has come to faith in Christ to turn back to the desires of this world? Is that really too strong of an image? You know, from Peter's perspective, that's what was happening. They were going back to living for a corrupt world. It's, it's tantamount to these images. This is no hyperbole. It's an understatement. See, these images give you a vision of what dogs do, what pigs do. Dogs return to their vomit. Pigs return to the mud. And why do they do that? Because it's their nature. That's the reason that a pig runs to the mud and the reason that a dog goes and and eats its throat. You don't have to discipline him for that. You can. You can train him not to. But left to himself, that's what he does. It's their nature as a part of a corrupt world. They They love the vomit and the dirt. And this is the truth about us apart from Christ. We love corruption. We we, we love sin. But if we have true faith, we we love Jesus. We love Jesus' people. We love God's Word. We love prayer. We obey Jesus because we love Him and trust that obedience is Good for us. It's our nature. It's our new nature. See, we began with the false teachers as waterless streams with reservations in hell. God warned his people in Jeremiah's day of forsaking the fountain of living or flowing waters that give life. But Jesus, Jesus comes later. The king of Judah. And in John 7, 37 to 39, he says this. If anyone is thirsty. Are you thirsty? If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. Do you catch this? These these false teachers, they they are dry cisterns. They have nothing to offer. They are empty. But if we have come to Christ and drunk deeply from him, then what that means is the teaching and the things that we talk about will be Christ-centered and Christ-saturated and life-giving. Now, this is what Jesus said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, but Jesus was not yet glorified. But He has been glorified at the cross, and we have received the Spirit, and so we, we are those who are called to bring forth the mighty waters of Christ. Catch the good news. Jesus came and drank the cup of God's wrath 
for you and for me. He became forsaken for us, that we might not have to be forsaken anymore for forsaking the fountain of living waters, but that we might drink, drink deeply, and be forgiven. And Jesus says, when we drink of him by faith, our dead, dry hearts become a garden and a fountain that flow with life for others. We will be vessels and instruments of grace and the lives of others if we have met this Christ. Our nature changes. We seek to be led by the Spirit and not by the flesh. We are destined for restoration and not corruption and death. Our, revation, our reservations, they are with God in heaven forever, not with demons in hell. Let me close with a, a few applications first. If you're struggling with assurance of faith today, let me just encourage you to ask yourself why. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his little book on um, spiritual depression. He says that he always begins, if somebody's struggling spiritually, with asking them, have they gotten enough sleep? Sometimes a good nap will make you feel better about your relationship with Jesus. That's true life testimony. I can affirm that. Second, are you living in unrepentant sin? Are there ways that you are sinning that you have not repented? Is it a surprise to you, if you do have the Holy Spirit, that you would not feel like all is right, that all is well with your soul? You have made for more. You've not been made for the corruption. You've been made for Christ. Are you praying, meeting with God's people, reading God's word, giving faithfully, seeking to be a blessing rather than seeking to consume all that you can get yourself? Are you confessing and repenting? You know, if those are things that you're not doing, then confess and repent those things and trust that God is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Third, are you trusting your own works more than Christ? You know, maybe the reason that you are not tasting and seeing the goodness of Christ today is because you still are distracted by your own works, your own righteousness, your own efforts. And you have not seen yet that you are hopelessly desperately thirsty apart from Christ. You must drink him in. Fourth, are you careful about who you listen to? Are you spending too much looking to other shallow, empty cisterns on social media? Are, are you drinking, are you trying to drink all day long from sources that do not satisfy and then you're wondering why at home, when you get home at nights, you're an empty well? Also, Christian. Realize that you can look and, and, and act like a Christian and yet not be one. I mean, our text is, is clearly saying that. You, you can clearly be in that, that group of visible, identifiable people and yet not truly have faith. If you're not growing, you're not just dying, you're dead. Good trees produce good fruit. Fourth, faithful church membership is a great way to show the surety of our faith and to increase our assurance. And one thing that we ought to be doing is trying to encourage one another that we truly are believers if we are truly believers, showing evidences of grace in one another, pointing out things that we might not see ourselves, both good things and bad things, so that we might grow in Christ. Didn't you want to know, wouldn't you want to know if you had reservations in hell? I would. Don't you want to know if you do? We, we don't de-church. We're either a church or not. And the church is a great place to reveal the trueness of what you are. Now, let me just say really clearly, I trust that everybody who's a part of this church is regenerated, alive in Christ, destined for heaven. But I'm not surprised every once in a while when somebody comes and says, I thought I knew Jesus, but I didn't. 
I'm just glad they do today. And if you're not a Christian, know that your great desire for freedom is only found in Christ. He rescues you not just from a corrupt world, but from corrupt desires. And he has made you for so much more. And if you're not living for Christ, it's not living, it's death. See, he made you for himself. And I want to encourage you, if you've not drunk from Christ today, if you don't know the water that we speak, don't leave without talking to myself or another Christian about how you can put your faith in Christ and live forever with him. Let's pray together.